Welcome to Neurosalience, the OHBM podcast. Welcome to the Organization for Human Brain Mapping Neurosalience podcast. I'm your host, Peter Banatini. Here, I interview brain scientists and discuss their work, as well as the latest advancements and challenges in the field of brain mapping. My guest today is Dr. Mikhail Ramat, who is a pioneer in the field of real-time neurofeedback fMRI. This method is a unique and powerful kind of fMRI involving real-time feedback of brain activity to the subject towards the goal of enhancing or suppressing activity or connectivity and ultimately changing behavior. Her work has taken real-time neurofeedback fMRI to the next level, embracing operant conditioning to alter measured fMRI network activity independent of the subject's awareness or conscious control. Here we discuss all the types of neurofeedback-based fMRI, focusing mostly on her implicit neurofeedback studies. We discuss the real-time fMRI feedback setup, as well as the potential applications for understanding how the brain reprograms itself, as well as clinical applications. Dr. Ramat received her Bachelor of Science in Mathematics from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem in 2004. She went on to receive her PhD from the Interdisciplinary Center for Neural Computation, working under the guidance of Rafi Malik and Leon Duell. She carried out a postdoc at the Department of Neurobiology at the Wiseman Institute of Science, also under Dr. Malik, and did a second postdoc under Dr. Alex Martin in the Laboratory of Brain and Cognition at the National Institute of Mental Health. She's currently a senior scientist in the Department of Brain Sciences and the Roll C. Buck Career Development Chair at the Wiseman Institute of Science in Rehovot, Israel. This conversation was just fascinating as it covered so many possibilities and questions regarding how fMRI can be used as a means to change the brain as well as a tool for understanding how the brain changes itself. Enjoy. All right, welcome, Mikhail uh, Ramat. And actually, I hopefully I pronounced the your your name correctly, Mikhail. Ramat, Mikhail. Yeah, that was that was pretty close. That was good. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast, the OHBM Neurosalience podcast. And uh, today we're talking about something uh, really, I think that has been sort of exciting for a while, but then it sort of died down. Now it's coming back. But the more I look into it, it's it's really exciting to me. And and hopefully we we convey that to the the people listening to this. It's real time neurofeedback fMRI. So everyone thinks about clinical applications of fMRI, but this is a huge one, has huge potential for, for clinical therapy, but also, uh, as hopefully we'll be talking about, and really understanding how the brain uh, changes itself and, and how and, and causality in, in, in network uh, activation. So just to begin, and also Mikhail has been uh, a pioneer in this area for a while and has written some very impactful papers uh, 
actually sort of pioneering new types of paradigms as well with real-time neural feedback. So just to begin, uh, so your background uh, is in, in mathematics, but then you, you got into neuroscience, which I think is, is probably one of the best ways to get into neuroscience with a background in either mathematics or physics or engineering. Um, but so what made you, what was your start and what made you uh, sort of become more interested in the brain? So it was actually kind of random, like it, it just happened that way because of people I met, I think. So when I was doing my undergrad in mathematics, I was also doing at the same time, uh, like a co-major in um, this interdisciplinary program of the humanities. And the people from this program came from all over. So you did like this program, which was like half of your, of your undergrad and something else. So some of them came from mathematics, some of them came from physics, some of them came from psychology or like any other humanities background. And our TAs also were graduates of this program. So they also came from all different kinds of places. And some of our TAs were in this computational neuroscience program for grad school. So I learned about this uh, neuroscience program from them and it sounded kind of cool. And then I finished my undergrad and I was, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do in life. Yep. So I actually took a year off and went to South America oh. and I was in South America for eight months and like traveling all over and hiking and thinking like, what do I want to do with my life? And I was like, oh, but remember those people, they, they talked about the neuroscience and kind of sounded interesting. We could, maybe I'll try neuroscience. <laughs> so I signed up for the neuroscience program and I actually knew nothing about neuroscience before I began. So I hadn't studied biology since like seventh grade because I was always in the physics math direction yeah. and I knew nothing at all about the brain, but this program was also like an interdisciplinary program brought people from all over. So they had this really great introductory introductory course to neuroscience. And there I first learned about action potentials. Like, oh, this is amazing. This is so cool. And then I was in love and then that's it. I've been in neuroscience ever since. Oh, well, that's, that's, that's a great that's a great story for for a start. I, I think, yeah, I think it's underrated uh, taking time off after. I mean, I think that's almost the case of everyone, and 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 a lot of people actually say right when they take some time off, they get a good perspective, and then they can dive into what they want to do. And that's South America. That's that's awesome. Um, so and then once you got started, uh, uh, so were there any you know sort of mentors? So who so who is your 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 mentor when you? Uh, uh, started graduate school was uh, Rafi so Malach. Yeah. yeah, so my, my main PhD mentor was uh, Rafi Malach, okay. who's just an amazing mentor, I think, in, in general, probably the best I could have asked for. Um, so I think my, my two main mentors in life were Rafi from my PhD and Alex Parton from my postdoc. And both of them, I think, were just such great examples of what a scientist is and what a scientist should be and how a lab should be run and, you know, like how you should do science on all different levels, like this, obviously science, but also in terms of how you manage a lab, how you interact with students, how you, how you help them, how you nurture them. So in, in that sense, it was amazing. And I think what really got me into, into neuroscience after this initial like epiphany with the action potentials was Rafi is just so enthusiastic about science. So I remember we would go on, on lab uh, field trips, like we would go see flowers and we would drink wine because it's not an age. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and he would get like, you know, a little bit tipsy and then he would still talk about science. So when yeah. he was at his most enthusiastic, you know, this is what he really was passionate about. This is what he really, really cared about. And it was just so inspiring to be so in love with what you do. Yeah. So yeah. I hope to be in that space as well. 
Well, well, that's that's uh, yeah, and I think actually right, and it's a rare person. I think that right, you you pick that up, and and uh, and I think from what from from my interactions with you, with you, I think that you would fill that role really well. Uh, uh, but I do think, yeah, I think it, that many people actually, uh, you know, it's it's the it's the uh, you know how they carry themselves, how they run their lab, what their passion is that rubs off on people almost more so than you know just information that they give them uh, about what to do and whatever. So that's that's really important. Um, so so you started doing research. He's a vision neuroscientist, and so you started doing uh, uh, some sort of research on. Uh, more, you know, the pure, either like fMRI or, or otherwise, I think, and then, uh, uh, and then you got into uh, real-time fMRI mm -hmm. and uh, 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 real-time neural feedback. So how did that, how did that interest get peaked uh, in, in your brain? <laughs> so I was doing, Rafi was actually kind of transitioning from being really a vision neuroscientist to more a consciousness neuroscientist. So he's been really interested in consciousness the past decade or so. Um, and I was studying spontaneous activity when I was both with fMRI and also with ECOG yeah. in epileptic patients. And then in 2011, the Shibata paper came out. Yep. So this is a paper where they did, this is the first implicit neurofeedback paper, yes. I think. And it's, it's an incredible paper. And they show that you can, you can train the brain to learn without telling you what to do, right? It's like the first, the first time I've ever seen implicit neurofeedback. And I saw neurofeedback papers before, but this was so different. It was so interesting. So like all the other neurofeedback papers I'd seen before seemed like they, they didn't seem to be doing anything really new. And this was doing something really novel. And I just got so excited about this. And Rafi also got really excited about this. And we started talking about it. And also, okay, so <laughs> when I was a teenager, I read Heinlein and, and Stranger in a Strange Land. Yes, yes. But, okay, so in Stranger in a Strange Land, which is, you should, teenager is the last age at which you should read this book. You shouldn't read this book. <laughs> I tried, I reread it and it's terrible. But as a teenager, it had a deep impact on me. And in this book, one of the, the main characters was raised on Mars. And the Martians taught him to do what Martians do, which is basically cure themselves. Right? So they go into this meditative state and then they cure themselves of whatever is ailing them. And I read the Shibata paper and I was like, oh, this, this is kind of like that. Yeah. Right? You're kind of training your, by showing the brain what it's supposed to do, but without actually like, act, without explicitly trying to get there, yeah. you're just letting the brain learn where it's supposed to go. Yeah. So I thought that this has such tremendous potential for, for everything, right? Like if you can do this, if you can teach people to see gradings without showing them gradings, then yeah. you can do anything. Like you could do, maybe you could rewire the brain in any way you want which I actually think isn't the case. I think there are constraints on what you can and can't do with neurofeedback. But yeah. the, the basic concept just got me so excited about this field. Yeah. And then I knew that this is what I want to do. Yeah, yeah, and, 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 and definitely, and I think actually the, uh, we'll talk a lot more about that. And I, I totally agree with you. I think that um, you know, the early days of real-time feedback were, you know, I think, for instance, you know, the Chris DeCharms paper got a lot of attention back in 2004 with, you know, pain mitigation, but still that was sort of along the lines of, of uh, you know, potentially, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's important to actually spell out the differences in the paradigms uh, a little bit more carefully, because I, I think people picture, when they picture real time, they, you know, they picture 
uh, sort of consciously trying to do something. It's, it's not clear what strategies people use, but do something to uh, change the brain activity uh, as it's fed back to them uh, for a certain network. In this case, the, for Determs, it was like a pain network. But, but you're right. I mean, the, the Shibata paper, though, uh, I think was a, was a huge shift. And that is the, the subjects didn't even know what the experiment was. And, uh, you know, they were, they were looking at these gratings and, and, you know, with a certain grating, uh, you had, you know, this ball that, or this, this circle that, that expanded and that, and that probably gave a little bit of dopamine, uh, or, or some sort of something, uh, some sort of neuromodulation, maybe in the, you know, basal structures, the caudate nucleus of retainment that then went and said, Hey, that, whatever that was is good that you were doing. And it was happened to be that, that grating and. For, but it's and, all spontaneous activity, right? They're yeah. not actually seeing anything. It's just you're looking at, you're kind of monitoring spontaneous activity in the brain as it happens. And yeah. whenever you see the pattern you want to reinforce, then you reinforce, you give reward. Yes. And it's like a basic operant conditioning approach. Yeah. Right? If we were doing this with monkeys, we would give them juice. Basically. Yes. Yeah. And that's so powerful because you're right. You're bypassing the conscious process. So it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like Pavlov, you know, on, on steroids in some sense. It's sort of like, you know, you're... <laughs> You're, you're, you're training the brain networks uh, without your conscious pro uh, processes uh, being in the loop. But, but anyway, we're, we're potentially getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah. Uh, and, um, but just why don't you trace back? I think that like, for instance, um, you know, way back in the nineties, you know, real-time fMRI was possible with, uh, and, you know, Bob Cox was one of the, among others, uh, sort of developed sort of the ability at least to bring up fMRI images uh, in real time, and that was great. It was sort of exciting. It was a nice, cool tool to show, you know, for demonstrations. But but the use of it didn't come around until maybe, and I think D Charm's paper was one of the major first ones. But there are others. I think you probably know that better than myself. But then, but then, um, but then, right? The the field, and actually that paper, uh, just to reemphasize that that it generated so much excitement. I remember uh, at the NIH there was you know. There's whole RFAs, uh, requests for uh, applications that were put out with real time in mind, and it was exciting. Um, but uh, so, why don't you describe just just so people know uh, the basic real time fMRI, uh, real time neurofeedback setup, and independent of whether it's uh, maybe describe the conscious feedback versus the, uh, the what you were describing as well. So yeah. So the basic setup is the same for the two approaches, right? You have, you put your subject in the scanner and then you're monitoring the brain in real time and way in advance, you, you define what networks or regions you're interested in, right? And then you, and, and you can recognize them in real time. So you have maybe this mask and you can extract the signal from these particular areas in real time. And then you can do all kinds of, and then it diverges with what you do with the signal. So in the more conscious explicit paradigm, the idea behind it is that you now feed back the, so you're translating the signal from the brain into something that they can perceive, that your participants can perceive. And by translating it for them and making it explicit for them, you're allowing them to explicitly learn how to control it. Right? So say now if you're interested in an activity in the amygdala, then you can look at real-time activity in the amygdala, and then you can portray this as some kind of bar on the screen or you know, something like say a, a bar on the screen, right? And the level of the bar indicates the, the level of the activity and you're telling them what this represents. 
So you say this represents activity in the area of your brain that's involved in emotional processing. So if you want it to be higher, then you should you know, think happy thoughts or try and uh, remember emotional events. And you give them an explicit strategy for controlling the signal. And then they see the signal uh, go up and down as they do whatever strategies they're doing. And the idea is that they can then learn to better control it, right? That's, that's one setup. The implicit setup is similar technically, right? So you're still, you still have this activity from the brain, but now instead of telling them what to do, you're just reinforcing the activity that you want. So you're not translating the signal. You're not portraying it visually in any sense for them. You're, you're only rewarding, you're abstractly rewarding the occurrence of the brain state you want to reinforce. So A, this gives you way more flexibility because you don't need to know what this brain state does, right? So if you want to give them a strategy, you need to know what the strategy is. If you're not giving them a strategy, then you can now reinforce anything, right? So you can look at activity, how activity in the amygdala correlates with activity in a different part of the brain and only when they co-activate, you give feedback and you don't know what would make these two areas co-activate. Right? Yeah. So you have much more flexibility. And the feedback you give should be kind of decoupled from the network you're trying to train because you don't want it to activate the network in itself right, right. That's right. A, a, maybe that's a point we should get into a bit later we should expand yeah. on that. Okay. but that's the basic setup so you have the real-time signal from the brain and you're either showing it to them explicitly or you're just rewarding them whenever the activity pattern fits whatever it is you're trying to reinforce yes yes okay all right so now that that's clear uh you know i think that you know you know, the first thing that was made that possible was, you know, echoplanar imaging, but then also, you know, high-speed processing to actually yeah. create these functional images on the fly. Um, uh, and obviously the, the feeding back is pretty straightforward, but uh, one, one thing that has always, you know, not really always, but uh, uh, still does, I guess, trouble me a little bit is, is the, the hemodynamic delay. So, so you think with any sort of conditioning, you want sort of have the, the time frame of the, uh, the the feedback with whatever you want, sort of coupled in time. But you know the hemodynamic delay is about seven to seven ten to ten seconds, and then the processing that's probably almost instantaneous. So, but is that delay a significant issue? Do you think, or things are not so transient, and hopefully they're they're spread out a little bit over in time that that it's sort of overlapping with the reward? Um, yeah. So. I think one of the really surprising things about real-time fMRI neurofeedback is that it works because of this hemodynamic delay, because I agree that you would expect this delay to, to ruin the effect, to be too large, but it doesn't. So people can still learn even with this delay. So the question is why? And it's possible that it's just that things are, as you said, they're more spread out. So we know the spontaneous activity is slow, right? You have waves that carry on for tens of seconds. So it's possible that you're just in this state for, an, an, 10, 20 seconds, and that's what you're reinforcing, and then it's fine, even though there's a delay. It's also possible that it's, it is more transient than that, but the, because the delay is fixed, that the brain can still learn. So it learns to, and to assign that credit to whatever happened a few seconds before, right? because the delay is fixed, or it could be a combination of the two. Uh, it's, it's a good question, but I do think that if we didn't have the delay, so for instance, if you were doing neurofeedback on electrophysiology, I would expect it to work better because, because it should be easier to learn without the delay. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, maybe just to bring that up really quickly, I think that uh, is there a potential for, uh, you know, I, I know that people can do simultaneous EEG and fMRI 
Uh, and I know some groups have, have been working on that for real-time uh, neurofeedback. Uh, do you see that as, as being synergistic or, or you know, somehow helpful to combine the two signals in some way? Yeah, so I think it depends on what you're trying to do, right? So for clinical applications, definitely, for many reasons. Um, for basic science research, I think maybe not quite yet, because for basic science research, if what you're trying to ask is about very specific brain states, you might not be able to get that level of resolution with EEG. For yeah. clinical research, I, I think that's definitely the direction it needs to go in. Okay. And, and, and what about, I mean, I think there's also the question of the fidelity of the signal. So, you know, with fMRI, it seems that you have a pretty high fidelity signal that you can actually use uh, within, you know, a few seconds. But, you know, EEG some, maybe is a little bit more noisy and it takes a little bit more. So it might be a wash in some sense, but who knows? I mean, that's... Uh, yeah. Although there are, like you said, there are groups that have been working on this and they've had some success. So, like Talma Hemter has been working on this for a long time and uh, Yeji Budurka was working on this as well. So, yeah. I'm, I know there's, it seems like you can, there, there are things you can do with this. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and, and all right, so, uh, so right, so you mentioned the uh, Shibata paper, and I think it's worth uh, sort of, you know, mentioning how cool that is. I mean, like you said, it, they, uh, they first did an experiment where they did Gabor patches and showed these networks, but then they, with that data, uh, they did, you know, multivoxel sort of pattern effect analysis of, of this, and then, had no stimulus, had had nothing. The subject was lying there, and um, uh, they they uh, were given sort of a reward in, in some sense when when uh, that activity pattern corresponding to one of the grading orientations uh, came up, and and they did this. It took like and this is an interesting question too. It took like about ten trials to sort of learn it, and and then the amazing thing, and we can talk about this, is that. Uh, their performance in recognizing that grading improved, and it didn't improve for the other ones. So yeah. why don't we talk about those two things? One, how long it takes for this to actually have an effect, um, and the difference between actually changing the networks versus changing behavior uh, mm -hmm. in the subject. So, yeah. so how long it takes to have an effect, I think, depends on your design in many ways. So for instance, in what they did, because it was a block design, then you're, you have a limited number of trials per run, right? So like each block takes about at least 30, 40 seconds. So, and you get one feedback per block. So in a 10 minute run, you would only have, I don't know how many events, like maybe 15 events. So I think that's why they need lots of runs in order to get an effect, because you need to have enough feedback events for the brain to learn. Uh, that's why I was trying to design more continuous uh, designs where you could do a kind of correlation and you could do it uh, TR by TR. So at each time point, you could give or not give a reward. And that way you could have as many as 200 rewards per, uh, per 10 minute run, right? So, and, and we actually show that you can learn within four sessions, even less actually, but within four sessions, almost all of our subjects were learning. Yeah. So I think it's, it's like this balance between having a reward that's, um, that's accurate enough, so you can estimate the signal accurately enough on the one hand, but ha also having enough trials. Yeah. So that's in terms of how long it takes. Yeah. And th the other question is really important. So, okay, so now you've changed the brain somehow, and what has it done, right? That's, that's the real question of neurofeedback. So this is what I'm mostly interested in from a more uh, basic science perspective, right? So one of the difficult things 
definitely with humans and fMRI, but actually also with animals and any kind of brain research is getting into causality. So you have all these correlations between a particular brain state or a particular network or you know, a particular activation pattern and a behavior, but you don't know if that brain pattern or correlation or network is causing the behavior. And what you want to be able to do is to perturb the brain directly and then see how that changes behavior. And in humans, if, you, if it also has to be non-invasive, then you're very limited in what you can do. Yeah. So that's what I think neurofeedback is perfect for. It's like a way of perturbing the brain because now you can take a brain state and by reinforcing it, you're changing it, right? You're making it stronger, for instance, or weaker. Yeah. And then, and you're doing it in a way that completely bypasses any overt behavior. Yes. And if after doing that, you see a change in behavior, then that really shows causality. That really shows that you had this network and then you magically changed it, right? Yeah. And now the behavior is different, then that network controls that behavior. Yeah, and it seems that it's in this method seems like it sort of, uh, you know, sort of uh, makes use of this intrinsic, uh, you know, sort of evolutionary system anyway. You know, you have, you know, dopamine or whatever reward with behavior and, and certainly there's a network in between, but here you go reward with network and then it affects behavior. And it seems more natural and potentially more powerful than, you know, obviously there's many neuromodulation methods like, you know, TMS or whatever. And, and that seems somehow, uh, you know, unnatural in some sense where, where the networks may not naturally be firing in sync or out of sync or, or suppressed or enhanced. And here it's sort of like you take a network that spontaneously emerges uh, or not, and then you try to uh, and just uh, reinforce it. Yeah, just reinforce it and push, nudge it in different directions. Yeah. yeah. So all the other neurostimulation techniques, for instance, and they're all kind of imposing external activity patterns on the brain. Right. So you're you're kind of hitting the brain with this large hammer, and then it changes, but you don't know exactly what happened in between, right? Because you created all these patterns that never existed. Right. And here, all you're doing is reinforcing existing spontaneous activity. So in that sense, it's much more natural. Right? And I think that's it's a good way of learning about the brain. And the other thing is that you can do this to almost everything. I mean, we've, we did this on correlations. You can do this on activity patterns. But you can also think about doing this on you know, frequency bands or if you could measure neuromodulation, specific neuromodulators in real time, you could reinforce you know, the concentration of, neuromod of, of a particular neuromodulator. You could do anything. Like you could reinforce anything that you can measure in real time. Yeah. And that, that is so cool. That is so cool. Uh, and you can imagine, right. I mean, <laughs> uh, and you know, it, it seems like, and, and from the early work, it does seem like it, it works. I mean, you have, you have a paper uh, and we'll talk a little bit about your recent one, but you have one. Uh, uh, why don't you talk a little bit about your paper with uh, uh, the autistic spectrum uh, uh, and, and actually you have subjects who had, had autism and uh, you essentially, you know, to some degree, change their behavior. And so, why don't you mention that a little bit? Uh, okay. Yeah. So the idea here was to, to really look at whether we could change correlations in the network because it's like, like you said, it's not easy to target correlations with fMRI because the signal is slow, and so we had to come up with a way of of measuring a kind of proxy for correlations in real time that we could reinforce. And we wanted to, to ask two things, like, can you change correlations in the network with real-time fMRI? 
And can you do this in, an, in a network that's somehow aberrant, like developmentally aberrant? Yeah. And we know a lot about uh, aberrant connectivity in autism spectrum disorder. And uh, from Alex's lab, there have been lots of studies looking at, at this kind of aberrant connectivity. So we took a data set from, that Steve Gotts collected in the lab, and we found the two nodes that were most underconnected in autism compared with controls. And not only were they underconnected compared with controls, but they were also correlated to symptom severity. Right? So the more undercorrelated they are, the worse the social symptoms in autism were. And the question was, okay, so if we now strengthen these connections to make them these nodes, right, to make them more like the typically developing brain, then A, will, will it work? <laughs> like, can we do it with, with neurofeedback? And will it change behavior? Will they become more, uh, less socially impaired? So, so we tried this and we, we brought them in for four different sessions, like they came in four times. And it was only about half an hour of training each day. And we just reinforced these connections whenever they, whenever they co-activated, like these two nodes. And the way, and and the way you reinforce it, uh, once again, it was sort of like a, a hidden picture. And whenever the yeah. network, yeah. No, you might, yeah, might, so we, might. we thought a lot about what to do, like what the reinforcement should be, because like I said, so we haven't really gone to this yet. And I think we should talk about this more, but yeah. we wanted the feedback to be orthogonal to the network that we're training, because you want to completely, if you want to look to causality, you want to completely decouple everything. So you're only really directly changing the network and not doing other stuff that might also affect it, right? So we wanted the feedback to be not related to this network, which again, we, we didn't actually know exactly what it does. It was STS, part of STS and part of somatosensory. Yeah. So it's not like I can tell you what to do to make STS and somatosensory co-activate, but because it was related to social symptoms then we didn't want the feedback to be social in any way. So you want feedback that's kind of orthogonal to social networks, and but you want it to be rewarding because we don't know how it works, but it has to work through the reward system. Right? Whatever neurofeedback is doing is modulated by the reward system. So it has to be rewarding. And it's slow because it's fMRI. Yep. So like there's a limit, you can't, like it, it would be good to have like a really cool game that they play, but it, it's super slow because the feedback can only be once every two seconds. Yeah. Uh, so then we came up with this puzzle task game where they start off with a blank screen and we tell them there's a picture hidden beneath, beneath the screen and your job is to reveal the picture. And good luck. <laughs> and like, what? What? what are we supposed to do? And it's like, oh, it's, you'll figure it out, just try. So then we put them in the scanner and they see this blank screen and then they, you know, they, they come up with all these strategies. But yeah. what's really going on is that we're looking at these two areas and whenever they co-activate and not with the third area, then we reveal a piece of the picture and yeah. it comes up with this like happy sound, right? So you have like a happy sound <laughs> and you reveal a part of the picture and then they get to see the whole picture and then and we do this for um, like five different runs and they get their score at the end of each run, which is like how many squares they revealed. And if they, next one, they reveal more squares and they get a bonus and they get really into this. So it was, it was good in the sense that it felt like it really was rewarding for them. They were really into this game. And that, that's the important part. Like it just has to be rewarding. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so okay. So then, um, so they do this and they do this uh, several times and, mm -hmm. And so what, what, uh, uh, so then what we saw is that, so we were training this like mini network. So we were training these two nodes to correlate more and to correlate less with the third control node. And we saw that that's exactly what happened over the four days of training. Yeah. Uh, the correlation between the two targets increased day to day and the correlation between the target and control went down and then it stayed down. And then we brought them back a month or a year between a month to a year following the training. And we saw that most of the gains were maintained. 
So the network was still at the almost at the end state of the training, almost like even a year after. The other thing was that it seemed to be very spatially specific. So we also did the whole brain analysis where we looked at what changed in the brain following the training. And we saw that what reliably changed was like these areas. So if you ask across the entire brain, which area is now more connected to target one, for instance, and less connected to control, then you get to target two. But if you look, so like at the very highest uh, threshold, you get target two. But if you take the threshold down a little bit, you see that's not only target two that changed, but also the entire network that's that's correlated to it, that's connected to it. So it's like you're changing. And when you think about it, of course that's true, because you can't change like a single neuron in isolation or a single region in isolation. So everything that happens downstream and upstream is also changing to support it. But the yeah. peak of the change was exactly where we targeted. So that was very cool. That's incredible. And and it and it translated into uh, behavioral measures as, as, as well. Yeah, so we did we saw a correlation between the change in the brain and the change in behavior. It was a bit strange though. It wasn't like they didn't overall get better. <laughs> okay. But it was correlated. And I think so two things about the behavior. I think a the behavior we measure in ASD, it's a very complex measure and it's not, you know, it's not a good measure. It's like these uh, parent questionnaires and they're not they're not meant for this time scale of change anyway. Right. So it's amazing that we saw anything at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and yeah, it's a very complicated behavior as well. We were only targeting like a part of this network. So we know there are lots of different networks that are aberrant in ASD. Yeah, and it might be right. It would be interesting to actually write fully characterize the networks and maybe you know go through and sort of change each one of them. And, mm -hmm. but I mean, there have been other examples of, uh, you know, I think Michelle Hampson, uh, at Yale has been sort of pioneering this as well. And she, and she actually found some, without going into her paper that much, that you know, with clinical symptoms that, uh, uh, that subjects not only got better, but then once they were sort of in this different trajectory, they kept on getting better after the therapy, which is interesting in itself as well. Yeah, so that really fits with the way I'm thinking about neurofeedback, about how it can actually work. Because like I said, we brought them in for half an hour of training four times. So it's like two hours of training of their entire lives. And it had a significant effect on the networks. You're like, how, can, how is that possible? How can you change networks in two hours of this noisy training with the HRF delay and, and all that? And I think this happens because the networks are already in this kind of suboptimal state. And what the training is doing is kind of pushing them out of this local minimum, and it's bringing them into a, a slightly more optimal uh, state. And because it's a better state to be in, then it's self-reinforcing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that's why it continues to get better, right? That is cool, right? It's and, and so yeah, self-reinforcing in a sense that um, not only the network is sort of in this state, but also maybe the the manifest behavior, whatever that is, is sort of like somehow more pleasurable or something. It's more rewarding. Right. But, but also maybe, so if you think about this network as being, uh, it, okay, so if you think about a particular network as being optimized for a particular task and your network is somehow not optimized for that task, right? So for instance, my face memory network is not optimized for face memory. <laughs> <laughs> and say I, but this assumes that there is a state that is optimal for face yeah. memory, right? And now say I push that network, my network a little bit into the direction of the more optimal network, then now when I see faces and I remember them a little bit better, then maybe it continues to push the network in the right direction, because there is a better way, a better network for remembering faces, for instance. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. And, and so maybe from here, we can talk a little bit about, um, uh, 
you know, I mean, and this is sort of an open question in terms of the mechanism of, of how this might work. I mean, actually, you had some really great paper uh, questions in your ticks, ticks paper that were that are worth discussing as well. But but what is sort of just the, the mechanisms? Uh, you know, how you know, nobody really knows exactly, but uh, but it seems stunning that that networks at, at this detail uh, can be enhanced or reduced. And not only and the other question related to this is that you know you change you might change it during the session, but somehow that has an effect of, of changing the probability over time, over a long, you know, changing your state such that that network is revisited more often in some sense. And that it's sort of a normal behaving network. But so what do you think, uh, and this actually may, might, you know, tie into questions of consciousness or whatever, or, or, or you know, it it's, seems incredibly powerful that you have just the simple reward, you have this very specific network and somehow, uh, they're reinforced and, and it's it's altered in some measurable way. Um, do you know what potentially the mechanism uh, is? And is there some master controller and uh, <laughs> subcortical uh, that does this? <laughs> so, <clears throat> my my guess is that, and this is actually some of uh, Steve Gott's work as well, that the dimensionality of of brain networks is much lower than we think. Yeah. Right. So the it seems like there's an infinite number of states. And then if you reinforce say 30 times and the brain doesn't know what you're reinforcing, it's, it's just count like saying, okay, this was, this was good. And this was also good. And this was also good. And then you average out, but there are infinite states. So you're, it's never going to average into something reliable, right? But if the dimensionality is, is much lower and there actually aren't that many states and whenever you reinforce a particular state, then you know then there are a few different things going on within that time frame and if you have enough enough time points like enough reinforcements and you average across them then the only thing that remains is this one thing that you're actually reinforcing yeah. yeah 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 so but for that to be true then the dimension would have to be quite low yeah which i think it is so i think that's what's going on that there aren't actually that many brain states that we cycle through in spontaneous activity and and then whenever you reinforce a particular brain state, you know if you have enough enough of these occurrences, then it's it just ends up reinforcing the one thing that is consistent across all the different brain states. Yeah, so that's interesting. So in terms of behavior, uh, so how many states do you think? I'm just out of curiosity. Uh, you know, people. So it's interesting. Probably people's intuitions range hugely on this. I mean, I I can imagine. Right. I mean, if it, the way it's the way you chop up states, I guess it makes a difference in terms of how how you categorize them. But you know, right? It might be twenty or mm -hmm. or something on that order, I guess. Um, but then, how does that then relate to you know? I can't even imagine a state where, like, back to the Shibata paper. You know, that's a very specific, uh, detailed activation pattern. Um, that I'm sure that there's millions of different types of activation patterns that are like that but, and so but not in v1 i think right because they were targeting v1, v1. right so right, right. And, v, and v1 is very sens sensitive to these orientation gradings right yep. so then to particular orientations and we know actually from uh, spontaneous activity studies in in animals so in cats for instance if you look at v1 you can see them cycle through these like different orientation patterns okay so the fact that you find this activity for a particular orientation pattern in v1 actually isn't that surprising Okay. All right. That's interesting. And then it brings to this, the question of, uh, so you go through these states and they're, and they're sort of, they're either conscious states or not even conscious states. And, and so it brings back to the, 
the another question, maybe even a bigger question, is like, what's the purpose of, of or, or a function of resting state in general? Yeah, that's that's a huge question. I think that's one of the main questions I'm interested in, just in general. Um, and my intuition is that it's it's just kind of a baseline for the brain. Like, it, it's not that it has a purpose in and of itself. It's just kind of showing you everything that's happened before. It's like a, the cumulative history of your brain. Okay. Up to and, this point. And it's sort of like it, it's sort of like the network's in this sort of ready state and it has to constantly be sort of, you know, either, you know, spontaneously priming itself or something. And, and, or... Yeah, it's like, it's a, it's a measure of your, all your predispositions, right? So you have all the ways in which your brain is connected, like all the parts of your brain are connected, which is based on your history and like maybe yep. genetics and whatever. And it's, so this is your baseline. And that's yeah. what spontaneous activity is, is showing you. It's like maintaining this baseline. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Okay. No, I, I think that's, I think that's definitely, uh, yeah, I, I don't disagree with that at all. Um, yeah. And it's, it really is interesting uh, in terms, in terms of, uh, you know, the detail, the network. So that's one of the other thing, uh, questions too, is that when you, when you choose a, something to reinforce, uh, you know, can you, how far can you go uh, in terms of, uh, can it be like, can I, can I take like the, like for, you can imagine doing this for, uh, you know, trying to help kids with ADHD or something. And so you find the, the whole attention network uh, or, or something that the entire network or uh, to, to reinforce. Um, uh, so, I mean, or, or even how detailed can you go? Can you, can you go down to layers? Uh, and that's another question. Um, yeah. So. Okay, so there's a few questions here. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> okay, so first off, I think there are um, neural constraints on learning. There's actually a great paper by Byron Yu, or he's on it as well, I don't know if it's his paper, which is called the Neural Constraints of Learning, um, that they did a kind of uh, brain-computer interface study in monkeys, and they were asking basically this, like, can you learn any pattern? And so what they did is they, they, they looked at the intrinsic manifold of activity in, in the monkey brain, right? So there are certain activity patterns that are more likely to occur and other activity patterns that almost never occur. And they show that a monkey can learn, can easily learn a new activity as long as it's within the intrinsic manifold. So it can learn to, to shift activity. So for instance, say it's used to a particular activity pattern causing a forward movement of the hand. And they can easily learn that now it's causing a rightward movement of the hand. But the activity pattern is an activity pattern that exists. Whereas if you try and take an activity pattern that doesn't exist and give it new meaning, then the monkeys have a very, very hard time learning this. And we actually also saw this in the study we did with the autism because we had a control group where we were trying to teach them uh, a pattern that doesn't really exist in the brain and they couldn't learn. Interesting. Right? So I think there is this kind of inherent um, constraint, which could be a hard constraint and it could be a softer constraint. It might be not that it's impossible for you to learn, just that it's much, much, much harder. So that's still an open question, but it, it definitely seems like there are things that are, so you can rewire the brain as long as you're respecting kind of this in, intrinsic connectivity. Yes, yes. So that's one thing. And then the other question is, okay, so now with real-time fMRI, how far can we go? And I think that depends on your signal to a large, so how clean you can get your signal will be a big part of this. So if you want to look at more than two nodes in the network, for instance, and you want to look at the entire networks, 
then it might be more difficult because the more nodes you're adding, the noisier your signal is, like the noisier your calculation, you might the feedback might not correspond to what you think you're trying to reinforce. Yeah. So I think it's you have it's a balance between uh, cleaning the signal as, as much as possible and then reinforcing as much as possible. So I don't know. And layer connectivity is actually another really interesting thing that I'm very interested in. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what what we can do with layer connectivity so far is actually mostly with Vaso, right? That uh, Renzo has been developing. Yes. And that's a very slow signal. That's even slower than the bold. Right. So I don't know if it'll work with real time. It might. So and then that goes back to the first question of what are what why is it working? Is it because it's a fixed delay, in which case maybe it doesn't matter if it's a longer delay, or is it because it's a slow signal and we're still riding on the edge of the signal, in which case, if it's a longer delay, maybe it won't be possible anymore. Yeah, and, and, and there's a chance that, I mean, maybe uh, you don't have to, I mean, certainly with uh, Renzo Huber's uh, vaso sequence that looks at vascular uh, blood volume changes as opposed to capillaries, it's more localized to, to mm -hmm. you know, upper lower layers, but you may not need that necessarily. You could do uh, bold. Yeah, you could do bold to, you know, as yeah. long as you get something that's modulated in, on, a, on a layer, uh, yeah, you might it might be good enough just to do bold. So, in this case, yeah, and so, depends, yeah. Oh, go on. Like how how clean you can get your signal. Right? Yeah, yeah. Like if it's because the real time signal is is way noisier than the post processing signal we have. Yeah. So it's already yeah. noisy, and then you're adding on top of that another level of noise, and it maybe it'll work and maybe it won't. I think it's just an empirical question. Yeah, I mean, it, and your one one's hope is that the noisiness will be balanced maybe by the the increased specificity in some mm -hmm. sense in, in terms of what the signal means. Like, you know, if you can get layers, you can get maybe potentially, you know, some measure of cognitive control or feedback or output. Yeah, I think the really exciting thing about layers is that you can then, I actually have a grant on this that wasn't funded, but I submitted. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it can give you a measure of feedback for, of directionality that you can't get any other way, right? Because yeah. if we have an hypothesis for what the directionality directionality would be between different layers, then we can look at that even in the resolution of fMRI, where otherwise we're just seeing co-activations and we don't know what's happened before. Yes. But if you know that this is going from the deep layers to the superficial layers or vice versa, then you can start to imagine at least that you're looking at directionality. Yeah, and that's huge, not only for understanding the brain and, and plugging into you know, uh, network models or whatever, but also, but also I think, right, for real-time feedback therapy in, in some sense where you, uh, you know, it might be a more specific network that yeah. is more effective. So that's that's so cool. Um, I mean, it's so exciting just to think about this. And, and right, we're doing everything we can to increase the signal to noise and going to high field strength and, and whatever. Um, so uh, maybe at this point, let's talk a little bit about the potential applications. So so we talked a little bit about autism. Yeah, we talked a little bit about uh, you know looking at gradings, but but then. You know, it seems like uh, the, the applications are are huge, and some are a little bit scary, maybe. Uh, but <laughs> I mean, I, I can imagine you know it could be applied to like PTSD. Uh, it could be applied to you know any sort of uh, application where you want to change someone's behavior, and potentially it could even be applied to. I was just thinking about well, let's say somebody has traumatic memories. Do you want to suppress those memories? You might be able to. Uh, make it, you know, find a network that's related to that and then either reinforce it or not uh, to help them in therapy in that sense. So I, 
you have more th insight into this. You've been thinking about this longer than I have. So kind of curious your thoughts. No, so I, I agree. I think the potential implication applications are are boundless almost. I think the, the main bottleneck at the moment is that we, we don't know what to reinforce. We don't know what the networks are. So, and I think that's when your feedback also comes in, but at the more basic science level. So first we need to figure out what we want to reinforce, like which networks are actually correlated to a particular behavior. Yep. And the thing is, especially with psychiatric, uh, psychiatric illnesses, the networks we know about are always very, very general, right? So like, okay, so amygdala is involved in PDO, okay, but amygdala is also involved in 5,000 different things. Yeah. So you can't just change amygdala, right? Right, right. So, so what exactly are you changing? Like what yeah. is the, what is the, and this goes back to the specificity, specificity question and you know, like how far can we push? But I think the first step is, and we're not there yet right, for most of these things is to really know what the networks are. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. And I, I think the way to do that is, is to do, is to have, I think the main thing we can do with this is using individual differences because which is something I've also been studying now for the past yeah. uh, year and a half. So more actually. Um, so we find individual differences in almost everything we look at. And they're actually really strong and also very reliable within an individual. And this goes back to spontaneous activity being a kind of baseline of your predispositions, right? And then you can use these individual differences in behavior to try and find the neural variance that predicts them. And so which neural variance predicts the behavioral variance? And then once you have that, then you have an hypothesis about which networks uh, cause this behavior, you can then train them with neurofeedback, see if it actually changes the behavior you were measuring individually. Right? Yeah. yeah. And, and then you can move on to the next step of like, okay, so maybe this can be a clinical application. Yeah, that's actually, that's a really, that's a really interesting uh, angle on that. So uh, sort of using the idea of individual differences to sort of bring out, enhance what are, what's the causality of the, of the networks that are related to that. Um, yeah, and I think that's, Right. It seems like the the, the other problem that FRI is struggling with is individual differences in terms of finding biomarkers. And so they, mm -hmm. you average thousands of people, you find a biomarker, but because of individual differences, they, they're less effective than maybe they could be. Uh, right. And this sort of makes use of the individual differences in some sense, exactly. um, which I think is, yeah, it's really interesting uh, in, in that regard. Uh, um, yeah, and you can imagine sort of, right, sort of individual tailored sort of, you know, you work someone up with a, with a battery of tests and then you, you find the networks and, um, yeah, and I guess you're right. I mean, there's so many, you know, like attention is, is huge. It could be done other things that uh, uh, you try to find enough of, of, of a network that is effective, but at the same time, you don't want too much to overlap with contradictory behaviors or, you know, opposing behaviors. And that's, yeah, that's we're in early days in that, but yeah. Because the level we understand these networks at, at the moment is, is very, very broad, right? So amygdala with uh, DMPFC, okay. But, you know, like so many processes in, involve this network. So I think we need to break it down a bit more. And, and also the other thing is that it could be lots of different networks. So for instance, if you, if you think about face memory, so we have a, a paper with Alex where we showed that memory for faces is kind of subserved by a, a whole um, lots of different networks, yes. right? So it's it's not just face areas and it's not just the connectivity of face areas to memory areas and it's not just the connectivity of them to visual areas, but it's also to memory area, to social areas. 
And when you think about it, like of, of course that's the case because of course face memory involves low level vision and face uh, processing and memory and social processing because I know you are Peter and not just be, I don't just recognize your face I also know where I remember you from and you know last conversation we had and like all these other things I know about you so it's it's very social yes and if someone is bad at remembering faces for instance it could be a failure in, in any one of these different networks and you could have two people who are equally bad at remembering faces but actually for completely different reasons yes right? yes so it's not even enough to know what the face network is you need to know for that individual where it went wrong yeah that's interesting that's interesting so yeah no i, I exactly yeah, as a matter of fact, it may not even be, I mean, so, I mean, it, it also brings to mind a little bit, uh, you know, the work by Jack Lant, who, you know, comes up with these semantic spaces, and it seems that sort of any sort of, you can imagine, uh, you know, face, face area being sort of like, that's where the faces are, but it's linked to, like you were saying, you know, it could be linked everywhere to this massive semantic space. Um, yeah, that's right. And so, so how would you, yeah, so I guess the question is, to the extent that it's, it might not, and I, I don't even know with, with, with Jack Lance's work that whether, you know, if he's actually studied individuals and how, if there's, I'm sure there's some order to it, but then there's some random, it's like a fingerprint in some sense, there's some randomness to it too as well. So yeah. that's also tricky. Huh. Okay. Okay. How would you go about like, right, if they're, if you, if you want them to help their memory, uh, uh, it would be almost, it would be hard because you're like, you're saying the memories are, you know, the, that network involved with that. You can imagine people have better memories because maybe they link it to more, to more right. things. And, and how would you even begin to increase the network that does the linking? <laughs> yeah. So, so I think, so we started looking at this actually with specifically with face memory. Um, and we found in at least in you know typically developing controls then it seems there are a few networks that that seem to be most involved in in predicting your ability to remember a face and then i think what we what you might need to do is for a particular individual find out which of these networks is most important like is most deficient in a sense right like which network needs most strengthening so for Going back to the ASD study, we also have some data on on participants with ASD where we saw that for them, it seems to be that the social network, like the link between the social network and the face memory network is the one that's mo most predictive of their ability to remember faces. Right. So that's where a lot of their deficits come from. Yeah. Whereas for for TDs, it might be that or it might be like a more memory link. And, and it could be different for different individuals. So once you know like the space of the networks and you can try and figure out for a particular individual where they are. Yeah. And then you would target that network for them. Okay, okay. Yeah, I mean, it, right. It seems like it open up, opens up an entire field of not only applications, but also like you're implying of, of actually understanding the causality uh, of networks in the brain. And, and sort of it's sort of a probe that uh, can actually get at this more directly. Um, it's it, like you're saying, it's sort of, it's a little bit like, t, you know, external neuromodulation to get a causality, but here it's sort of internal uh, reinforcement to get a causality, which is, which is really cool. Um, and it's amazing that it works so well. So, so why don't we go into a little bit um, uh, in, in terms of just general, more general questions as we, as we start to wrap up a little bit here um, without going into too much detail uh, is, What's sort of like your ideal 
uh, neurofeedback suite look like? What scanner would you use? What would you tell vendors to do? You know, what would you add to it? Um, <laughs> so we have Siemens scanners and we, we have figured out a way to get around some of their packaging. So <clears throat> we can get the real-time data from the Siemens scanners, but it was a bit complicated. And I think it would be nice if the vendors allowed easier access to the real-time data, yeah. right? So that it would be easier for people to work with it because there's, there's really so much you can do with real-time data. Even just uh, like AFNI's basic functionality of showing you subject movements yeah. during scans, right? It's, it's so important that you can see your subject moving a lot and you can stop the scan and say, okay, listen, are you uncomfortable? <laughs> what can we do for you? Please stay still. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's funny so, because, yeah, yeah, go on, sorry. Yeah. You figured out a way around then the, the, that, that, I would love to talk to you offline on, on how you did that. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, so, yeah. It was our physicist in the scanner who figured out how to do it. So okay, okay. she did a great job. So now we have access to, to the real-time data. And, and of course, then you need a good interface. So AFNI does a great job with the real-time plugin. There are a few other options for using real-time, for getting at the real-time signal. Um, you need to be able to reconstruct the images quicker. So especially with, with the 3T, it still works fine. With the 7T, this is becoming an issue. Huh. Right? It's like the image reconstruction isn't fast enough, and you start like um, accumulating delay yeah. as as you scan, especially if you're doing like multiband, multiband, multi-echo. Like as you get into yeah. more complex scans where each image is actually now ten images. Yes. And then and as you go higher in the in the fields, then data is heavier and it takes a while to reconstruct, and that is already becoming a problem with the seven Tesla. Really? So seven tests are just because they're higher resolution images, I guess. Or, yeah. And especially if you're doing multiband. Yeah. Multiband, multi-echo, it, it gets heavy. Is it is it like something that is solvable with like, you know, a dedicated supercomputer or something like that? Or is it something? Yes, I, th I think it could be, but that goes back to the access problem. So Siemens does the reconstruction on their computer if you want, and you can and we can access the data that they reconstructed, but taking the raw data and reconstructing it ourselves that we haven't solved yet. Yeah. So, so then you can't do, you can't have a, a special supercomputer because that doesn't work because you need to wait for the Siemens computer to reconstruct the data. Right, right. And there's, I mean, there's certainly, uh, you know, there's different groups out there with different solutions. Like we have our, our Gadgetron that sort of tries to take raw data off the scanner. And uh, there's another company called, Pul uh, that, uh, not really a company, uh, something called PulseSeq that not only allows you to, it, allows you to pulse program uh, sequences, but also take the data off before the mm -hmm. reconstruction. So there's, you know, there's third parties. I don't know if the vendors <laughs> like that that much, but uh, there's, there's third party solutions that, yeah, and this is really important. I mean, this is sort of, it speaks to a different problem that's sort of ongoing too, is that it's great that we can rely on vendors, you know, that make these scanners, because if they just relied on fMRI, uh, we wouldn't have any scanners. It's all clinical, but then they only yeah. care about clinical. And so they don't, think about optimizing things like this because it doesn't matter <laughs> yet, <laughs> but um, for them. Uh, but okay, so then going from there, let's, okay, let's say, yeah, then that's an issue. Um, uh, as far as the, the subject interface devices then, so um, is there like a, an optimal, do you think there would be an optimal type of feedback? Is it, you know, you've, you use visual, some auditory, tactile, you know, other things like that. Smell could be interesting. Um, smell could be interesting. We're doing a biofeedback study now with, with uh, smell oh. see if, in, in sleep to see if that works. <laughs> so it's completely unrelated. 
Um, but yeah, I think it would be interesting to try different kinds of feedbacks and see what works best. Um, I think in the end, it will come back to what's most rewarding. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. So it's sort of like it could be a or it could be a combination of visual and auditory or something yeah. like that. You know, sort of what, you know, like a video game in some sense where it's immersive. Yeah, I mean, if we could do a really cool immersive video game, I think that would be that would be so much better than everything we've done so far. Yeah, yeah. So that so then you have that. Um, right. Uh, and who knows? I mean, maybe there's some sort of uh, interplay with uh, uh, these signals with, you know, for instance, heart rate variability or respiration, or, you know, it'd be nice to measure those and maybe uh, get in sync with, you know, sort of how maybe use that also as, a, you know, sort of a signal of, of I don't know, how, how engaged the subject is or rewarded or whatever. Yeah, no, I think that would be really interesting. I think what we really need to do for neurofeedback is, is maybe collaborate with uh, animal researchers to figure out the mechanisms. So, for instance, one of the things I was, I was thinking is, um, we can measure prediction errors in animals, right? By, based on their dopamine neurons. Yeah. So it would be interesting to see at what point you stop getting prediction errors for the rewards. Like, do they learn at some point? Like, do they come to expect the reward after they create the brain activity? And that would show that they learned, right? That they know what they're doing, even though they don't consciously know, but that the brain knows that it's done something right and now it should get a reward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's actually right. I mean, I think that's a lot to learn, right, from the animal literature in that regard uh, as well. I'm, it still brings me back to think about the mechanism of this and how does the, you know, how does this dopamine signal sort of, uh, how, you know, you, you can imagine some sort of like, you know, uh, uh, sub, these subcortical structures that are involved with uh, dopamine release, or it could be other, you know, neurochemicals as well, but uh, that that actually reinforce these networks. I mean, it's it's, to me, that's, it works and it's so precise and, it, and it's something that I think we're just beginning to figure out. And if we can, it would be amazing. Um, but yeah, so so uh, not to drift anymore, uh, but is there any, so two other questions. Um, uh, so where would you, let's say this keeps on going. What's your, what's your hope or uh, uh, what can you imagine the field could be like, uh, let's say in five, you know, 10 or 20 years. I mean, what's your, what do you think the potential uh, is for this. If everything goes well, if it if it sort of works at the beginning, and uh, what can you imagine? That you know, every every hospital having this, or <laughs> yeah, no, I I think the possibilities are really endless. Because on the one hand, I said I think this needs to move into EEG for clinical applications. But if it really really works and it's strong, then it could stay within fMRI, right? Because it would be for a lot of these things that we could treat, it would still be worthwhile to bring them in for a few fMRI scans, rather than lifetime of treatment. Yeah. Like yes. this could really work. So even though MRI is like impractical in the clinical setting, I think if it if it was strong enough, it would it would be worth it. Yeah. yeah. So I, that's one direction, and also moving to other like more portable like EEG or whatever, and finding the right signature in the fMRI would obviously make things much easier. Uh, but but I think the possibilities really are pretty boundless. I, I think if it works, then you can do this on, you just need to know what the network is. That's yeah. that's the big thing. It's like, you need to find the right biomarker. Yeah. And, and maybe this biomarker needs to be personalized for it to really work. Yes, yes. Yeah, because it seems like there's enough, like you were saying, individual subject variation that you can't just uh, go in there and just assume that there's a certain specific network. And it might be tweaked. It might be tweaked, you know, like you might, there'd be aspects. Of, I mean, you can imagine, uh, you know, networks, but also, 
you know, different time scales and different, you know, spatial scales of networks that might subnetworks that might uh, be more specific or who knows. I mean, it's yeah, all it's wide open. Yeah. Right. And like I was saying, it doesn't have to be networks or correlations or activations. Like if you could, if you could track in real time neuromodulators, you could feedback that, right? And, and that could also be a very promising direction clinically or, yeah. you know, any other kind of signal that, that correlates with behavior. So when you say tracking in real time neuromodulators, you mean um, like what? Like, uh, like basal structures or, or neuromodulators uh, uh, like, you know, Areas involved with release of dopamine, or or what? Yeah, like like that. Like if you yeah. could track dopamine in real time, for instance. Yeah. Or if you could even if you could do MRS in real time. Yes. Yeah, that's hard. That's really hard. Yeah. I mean, it's so much less sensitive. But yeah, it's not out of the question. Uh, and who knows? There might also be my uh, you know other markers related to dopamine release that uh, could be sensitive to that in real time. Yeah, and, and I think that's the beauty of MRI is that there might be, you know, for instance, things like uh, uh, looking at neuromelanin, for instance, um, it's related directly to, you know, dopamine, uh, uh, you know, areas where there's high concentrations of dopamine. And it, who knows, that might be, you know, sensitized to that might be an indicator of this, uh, of dopamine release. Who knows? Um, uh, there's a lot of opportunities. So is there- We're counting there, on the MRI people. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, we keep on, we're keeping on looking. <laughs> um, keep on so, looking on. yeah. So is there any, is there any, um, is there anything that I may have missed? Is there anything that uh, you wanted to maybe mention that was worth mentioning uh, that I sort of glossed over or, or didn't? That's important, do you think? Um, I think we touched on most things. I, I think maybe, maybe the one thing that maybe wasn't clear enough was this distinction between spontaneous activity and kind of goal-directed activity. Yeah. So when you, so, and this is one of the main differences I think between explicit feedback and the more implicit covert kind of feedback is that in the implicit uh, scenario, then you're really just reinforcing these spontaneous brain states. Whereas in explicit feedback, you're trying to create the right brain state, right? Like you're trying to bring yourself into the right brain state and then it's no longer really spontaneous. So I think that's one of the big differences between two types of feedback. And I think, A, I think the implicit feedback has more potential for, for being effective. That's just my intuition. But also it's, in, it's a really unique way of being able to study spontaneous activity. Because like we said, we don't really know what these resting state networks are and what this resting state activity is. And almost everything you do would make it not spontaneous. Right? Yeah. So it would be difficult to study. And here you have a way of, of really directly modulating spontaneous activity and then trying to see what that does. So this is a way of answering this question about what is spontaneous activity? Like, what is its function? What is it doing? Yeah. And if you're able to somehow uh, modulate, you know, like, for instance, the number of the, the, the duty cycle or the, the, the time at which that state is achieved, you know, over time, you know, the, the dwell time, I guess. Uh, and that, that would be a good thing in terms of behaviorally. So it's sort of like, not only are you trying to enhance and strengthen that that spontaneous occurrence of that state but hopefully by doing that you you increase the amount of time going forward that it will that that state will be reached as opposed to you know overt conditioning in some sense or overt uh, responses it's sort of a mental strategy that you might learn right but then you have to actively engage in it all the time right right you'd have to whereas here you're just like shifting the baseline yeah yeah and and, and it just works in that regard um, 
And there's some people could argue that, well, it's good to have a met, you know, something that is like a mental strategy. It, it might be in some cases, but in general, I think you're right. I think that having like a state change that uh, that's would be more permanent and you don't ne necessarily, you wouldn't have any sort of drift in mental strategy or whatever. It's, uh, it seems like it would be locked in. Um, yeah, bypassing the conscious process is, uh, is both uh, super potentially powerful and uh, you know, some might, might be nervous by it, but, um, but I think it's actually, it's, it's all very, you know, it's above board and very clear what the purpose is. And, uh, and, and I think that's, that is, uh, uh, it, I think it's really has a lot of potential and it's an amazing thing that we can actually image the networks with high enough fidelity uh, and with high enough resolution with fMRI that to be able to do this at all. And I think it has huge potential. So, so, yeah, is there any, is there any, um, uh, and I think that, yeah, I think that, and that is an important thing, because that's when I uh, was thinking about even real-time fMRI, a real-time feedback, even a week ago or so, I thought mostly was that, and then, then the other parts were the operant conditioning, and, but I think I'm really excited by this, this, exactly what you're talking about, and what you have been doing, is that it does seem like it's a complete paradigm shift that makes it more effective, uh, and, and more elegant and, and sort of ties into uh, not only learning about the brain, but, but potentially very powerful clinical applications. So it's really exciting. Um, I think it's one of the most exciting things that come along in a long time and hopefully we'll, we'll catch on more. Um, I'm also really excited about this. Yeah, I mean, hopefully there's more people doing this. I think, you know, I don't think people are aware. Uh, I mean, it's certainly, you know, that's one thing you publish the papers and it's out there, but um, uh, yeah, I think that people think it's cool and, and it could be useful, but uh, I don't think they're truly aware of, of, of the potential of this in, in terms of tying into the spontaneous activity in this way uh, and bypassing conscious processes. So yeah, but, no, I really hope more people start doing this because it's, it's such a large field, like there's so much to study. And it's also very time consuming, which is, I think, one of the reasons people don't do it. Because if you need multiple scans for each participant, it, you know, like in, in today's world with limited resources, it's, it's complicated, but I really think that it's, the potential is just huge. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, right. I, I really do. And, and yeah, it's just a matter of, you know, getting it more refined and, and maybe standardized or, or whatever. So, oh, one, uh, one other thing I forgot to mention. So you're, you're actually, uh, uh, sort of part of the the very beginnings of a of a pretty large institute being built. Um, so, do you want to talk a little bit about that? I mean, to what degree will will real time uh, feedback play a role in that? What what are you what are you building at, at the Wiseman Institute? <laughs> yeah, so the Wiseman Institute has one of the flagship projects uh, this year or like this you know, decade is building a new neuroscience institute because we currently have like in we have a few old buildings where people are clustered and we have two departments, which is a more like systems neuroscience and more molecular neuroscience. And the idea of the Neuroinstitute is to bring everyone together and create more interactions between the systems and the molecular people. And, and then you have like the molecular systems and you have human neuroscience at the very end of this. Right. So <clears throat> we're kind of at the, the tip of this interaction. Uh, but we are building a new uh, fMRI facility as well, and we plan to, at the moment we're planning two scanners, and it's going. It, the building will be ready in about eight to ten years, 
So, you know, we've been thinking about what kind of scanners will exist in eight, 10 years. Like, what will we want? Will we want a three Tesla scanner? Or will that be obsolete by then? Like, will we have two seven Tesla? Will we have a seven Tesla and a 15 Tesla? <laughs> <laughs> you know, where are we going? And then hopefully this building will stand for some time. So, you know, we want to prepare for the new, new scanners. Like, what will be the new scanners in 30 years? Yeah. What will people be doing? Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and so it's hard to right. It, it, I mean, it's hard to think ahead more than just a few years. But and you, right, you want to hedge all your bets in terms of you know giving enough space in case um, you need it, or you know ways to integrate and <laughs> and the way neuroscience will evolve. You know, it's hard to anticipate yeah. everything, um, but that's exciting. But I'm hoping, yeah, yeah, I'm hoping that by by the time it's ready, the neurofeedback will have really taken off, and everyone will want to do neurofeedback. Yeah, 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 and. Uh, you know, one can imagine. And that's the thing. I think that we're really close to, uh, you know, having something that's a clinical application that all is, that other centers, not only clinical applications, certainly research applications are amazing. But for vendors, um, you know, it really comes down to clinical applications because that's what sort of drives the market for them. And having something like this that has a little bit of application, I think it would really cause the field to sort of take off if you can find something that, that, um, that right sort of gets your foot in the door and will allow it to propagate more, have vendors pay more attention to it and whatever. Um, and this I think has a huge potential for that. Um, so, uh, so very last question. Uh, 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 so, as a so, what would be your advice for uh, maybe a young researcher like a you know undergraduate or or even a graduate student getting into brain imaging? Um, what what's helped you? You know, what's, uh, what would be some good general advice, maybe specific advice? But, yeah. I think the most important thing is to, is to really know what you're trying to ask. Like, what is your question? And is the study you're designing, is it the optimal design for that question? And this also applies to neurofeedback, right? So are you doing neurofeedback because it's cool? Or are you doing neurofeedback because it's really the best way to answer your question? And I think it's this is a pretty large pitfall of neurofeedback because it seems like, oh, we'll do neurofeedback. It's cool. Yeah. But it really has to be tailored to the question that you're asking. So I, I think this is this in general true of science or research. But so I think you have to be very, very clear about what you're trying to achieve and then why you're doing why you designed your experiment in this particular way in order to answer this particular question. And then, of course, you'll just you'll collect the data and you'll realize that it doesn't answer your question at all and answers a different question. And that, that's fine. <laughs> that happens. It happens often. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and it's great. But I, I think it's still helpful to start with a very clear idea of what you're trying to achieve. That's a, that's 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 really good advice. Uh, I totally agree with you. Um, yeah, the power the power of the technique. I think usually, or the power of, of the question. Um, Asking, asking very clear, the, the, the better questions you have, the, the, the more the science will ratchet forward, I believe. Um, and you're right, people fall into this trap of like, oh, it's just doing it. And I have sort of, I kind of want to see if this is possible and want to do this, which is good at, to some degree, but really, right, if you could ask a, 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 an insightful question based on, you know, what you know, to sort of, uh, you know, it brings, it focuses what you do a lot more and it ratchets forward the field a lot better. That's a, that's a, that's really good advice. Um, uh, okay, well, uh, 
yeah, this was great. This was great. This is very exciting. And I'm hoping, actually, you've inspired me to start to talk to my own lab to maybe restart our real-time feedback, neurofeedback fMRI efforts towards uh, these sort of questions and others. Um, I'm and excited. Yeah. And, and potentially we can collaborate. I'd definitely ask you advice. <laughs> yeah, I love to collaborate. So. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, well, thank you very much. Uh, thanks for well, spending Thank you the for time. having me. All right. I appreciate Great. it. And good luck in the future. Bye. Thank you. Neurosalience is brought to you by the Organization for Human Brain Mapping. This week's episode was produced by Anastasia Brovkin and Alfie Wine.